Well, I'd like to add my welcome. Uh, my name is Rob, and I'm on the pastoral staff team here at St. Pete's. And no matter where you're joining us from today, uh, or what time you're joining us, uh, I want you to know that we're really glad that you are choosing to worship with us today. Uh, before we begin, will you pray with me? Living God, as we come to look at your word and to hear you speak, I ask that you would remove all distractions which might be going on around us, Lord, that you would incline our hearts and our ears to hear from you, and that the meditations of my heart and, and the words of my mouth would be pleasing in your sight. And may we hear you speak, Holy Spirit, to each one of us today. In your precious and holy name, amen. Have you ever seen a picture of an ostrich with its head buried in the sand? You know, that, that idea that uh, when an ostrich sees something dangerous around it, uh, a predator or, or something which seems scary, it, it just sticks its head in the sand. Because it's, if it's out of sight, it, it's out of mind. And, and surely now the danger has gone away. Now, I, I recently learned that that's actually not what's going on. It turns out that ostriches lay their eggs in a hole in the ground. And so when they put their heads in the ground, they're actually turning over the eggs in their nest, which isn't quite as comical. Uh, National Geographic has ruined a perfectly good meme for me with science. But whether they're burying their, their heads in the sand because of something frightening which they want to forget about, or if they're actually you know, burying their heads into their nest to turn over their eggs to tend to their nest, just imagine with me for a minute what would happen if, if while they had their heads in the sand, that, that sand just began to blow away. You know, they, they've got their heads in this hole, and, and then the hole just starts to disappear and, and to erode away. The protection and the comfort, the peace of mind of that little shelter suddenly disappears. And there's a poor, surprised, and, and probably quite confused bird just kind of sitting there looking around like, oh, the world never actually went away. I think very often the pace of our modern lives can often help keep us with our heads buried in the sand. Whether willfully keeping us distracted from um, thoughts and questions we'd rather not have to grapple with, or providing us with comfort of a nest where we can keep and tend these precious ideas about how we believe and want to believe that the world works, where we can keep some of the bigger questions at bay but our world's been turned upside down and our lives have changed and it may feel like the sand has been blown away. For the last number of weeks, we've been spending some time as a church looking at some of the things that Jesus said about himself. It's one thing for us to talk about who we think Jesus is, but it's quite another when we actually let him speak about who he is for himself. In the Gospel of John, there are eight times where Jesus says, this is who I am. And when Jesus speaks about himself, the world changes. God is made known. Everything is turned right side up. Our deepest desires are stirred and our hearts find their rest in him. Because when Jesus speaks, everything changes. Today, we're going to look at a conversation Jesus had with his disciples, where he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father 
except through me. Now, I recognize that this might feel a bit of a shocking thing to hear Jesus say. It, it's exclusive. It perhaps may, it even sounds a, a bit of an unloving thing for Jesus to say. It might feel offensive. And whether you're exploring faith or you're new to faith, or even if you've been walking with Jesus for a really long time, this might be one of those sayings of Jesus that we would rather wish he had just never said. It's kind of uncomfortable, right? But before we try and dismiss it, or or to, to try and forget that Jesus ever said this, let's spend some time today seeking to understand what it is that Jesus is saying about himself. I want to situate this statement within the larger conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. So if you have your Bible with you, I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 13, beginning in verse 36. In verse 36, we read, Simon Peter said to him, that is to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Before we get to what Jesus says about himself, we have to see that he's having a specific conversation with his disciples. You see, he's not just having any normal conversation. He isn't just shooting the breeze with his friends. And in fact, he's not even on a Zoom call trying to connect with his friends like many of us have been trying to do lately. No, he's saying goodbye. Lately, many of us have been forced to say goodbye ourselves. With this virus going on around us, we've been having to say goodbye in all areas of our lives. Whether it's saying goodbye to the gym memberships or to our favorite coffee baristas, or saying goodbye to our offices and our work colleagues, or you know, saying goodbye to our jobs and our travel plans. But those aren't the only goodbyes we've had to say lately, are they? I've lost track of how many friends I've had to say goodbye to in recent months. The friends who, especially the friends who've had to pack up their bags and leave because of this virus. In fact, maybe you are one of those people who had to pack up your bags and leave. And in recent weeks, some of us have had to say goodbye to someone who wasn't coming back. Not because they've moved across the country or or across the planet, but because they've passed away. Many of us are experiencing the grief of forced departures. And one of the hardest things about it all isn't just the absence of those we love, but the fact that we were denied the opportunity to truly say goodbye. The world turned upside down, and it's like the sand around us decided to blow away. The goodbye happened pretty quickly for Jesus and his disciples too. You see, this conversation happened on the night that Jesus was betrayed. Jesus knows what's coming, and he's saying goodbye to his friends. And they're not really sure what to do. And Peter hears Jesus saying goodbye, and he says, Wait, Jesus, where are you going? What do you mean you're leaving us? How come you're leaving? And why can't I come? John tells us in chapter 13, verse 36, that Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Peter didn't want Jesus to leave. 
And if Jesus is going to leave, Peter wants to go with him. I mean, he's followed him for the last three years. He's traveled all over the countryside with Jesus. He was devoted, and he was also brashly fanatical. And that's the point which Jesus calls him out on. In verse 38, we read, Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Jesus isn't impressed with Peter's fanaticism. Peter wanted to prove himself, to prove his commitment and his devotion to Jesus. He would climb the highest mountain and he would swim the deepest seas. Peter believed that he could keep pace with Jesus, that he could be good enough, that he could do enough to earn his place with Jesus. But there were two things that Peter didn't understand. The first was that he couldn't do enough. No one can. Peter's problem wasn't a lack of pious devotion. His issue wasn't an absence of zeal. No, he misdiagnosed his problem, and so he supposed that he could solve it himself. He thought he could just jump through the hoops, do the good deeds, live an exemplary life, keep pace with Jesus, and he'd be set. He was overconfident in himself, and he couldn't see his own sin. And Jesus calls him out on it and says, No, Peter, even before the sun comes up tomorrow, you will have lied and denied me three times. Peter's first mistake was presuming that he could do enough. He was overconfident in himself, and he wasn't aware of his own sin. The second thing Peter didn't understand was that he didn't need to earn Jesus' love. He didn't need to prove himself. He was already loved. I appreciate how the pastor Roy Clements puts it. He says, This superior disciple, before the night is out, will be blushing in shame at his failure. It will be a hard lesson to learn, but Peter must learn it, as indeed we all must learn it. For Jesus does not love us because we are faithful to him. He does not love us because we are willing to die for him. He loves us in spite of the fact that we are perfidious weaklings and our devotion to him must be built on the embarrassment of that humiliating self-knowledge. Peter was tending these precious beliefs that he held so dear to himself. But now the sand was blowing away. Peter's first mistake was presuming that he could do enough. He was overconfident in himself and he wasn't aware of his own sin. And his second mistake was to think that he had to earn God's love. He thought he had to prove and earn his way into Jesus' love for him. He was wrong. He was already loved. To quote Roy Clements again, Jesus is not looking for fanaticism from you any more than he was looking for it from Peter. The first thing he requires of any of us is faith. Jesus doesn't ask us to be his fanatics. Peter wanted to be a fanatic because he missed what was going on, and he was deeply insecure. He thought he could be good enough, and that through his radical devotion, he could keep step with Jesus and be worthy of receiving Jesus' love. But he didn't understand the gravity of his own sin, and he didn't understand that Jesus already loved him. Jesus loved Peter even in the midst of his sin. Even though Peter was going to deny Jesus three times before the sun came up, 
Jesus' love for Peter goes deeper than his sin. And Jesus' love for you goes deeper than your sin. And having said that to Peter, Jesus turns to the rest of his disciples and he says to them in chapter 14, verse 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it was not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. As he returns to saying goodbye, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Trust me. In my Father's house there are many rooms and I'm going to get them ready for you. These are words of comfort. The disciples are confused. They're getting worried. Why can't they go with Jesus? Where's he going? And what was all that just now with Peter? Jesus knows their confusion and their panic. He sees them. He loves them. And in the midst of their confusion, in the midst of the sand blowing away around them, he says to them, Trust me. Trust me, Peter. Trust me, Thomas. Trust me, all of you. Trust me that I know what I'm doing. Even though the ground is giving away beneath your feet, even though the mountains are beginning to tremble and the sea is starting to swirl in the midst of this storm, trust me, because I'm making a way for you. I'm making a way for you to follow me. And I'm coming back. And I'm taking you with me when I do. Trust me as I tread this path for you. The sand is blowing away and they're getting confused and afraid. So Jesus tells them to trust him. And then Thomas speaks up. Thomas, who I think we unfairly call doubting Thomas. Uh, It might be more fair to call him pragmatic Thomas. Because you see, Thomas catches the last thing Jesus says. In verse 4, Jesus says to them, and you know the way to where I am going. And so Thomas brushes past the whole thing about trusting Jesus, just as maybe some of you just did too. And in verse 5, Thomas replies and he says, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? I mean, it's a fair question. We still don't understand where you're going, Jesus. How can we trust you with this when we have all these unanswered questions? What are you even talking about? The way to where? One of my favorite stories is The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. It's it's a sci-fi comedy of disorienting timelines and contradictory retellings, which kind of appeals to my inner geek. Uh, But across all the different versions of the story, there's one line that always stays the same. 42. And in the story, an ancient alien race gets into their heads that they want to discover the meaning of life. And so they build a computer to tell them what life is all about. Because, you know, that's what ancient alien races do. Um, So they programmed a computer to tell them the answer to life, the universe, and everything. And they set it in motion, and the computer started going, and they had to wait seven and a half million years. But after seven and a half million years, the computer had finished its program and done all the cross-checks and triple-checks and everything, and they received their answer. 42. Now, 
Suffice to say, they weren't very impressed with, with the answer they got. And as they complained to the computer about it, the computer responds to them and says, well, I think the problem, to be quite honest with you, is that you've never actually known what the question is. They had asked a computer to tell them the answer to the greatest question of life, but they had never bothered to even ask themselves what that question even was, let alone what they or anyone else thought about it. It was as though they wanted to find meaning in life without actually having to figure out what makes life meaningful. Thomas says to Jesus, we don't know where you're going. How are we going to find the way? How are we going to know the way to a destination we don't know? He didn't have to wait quite as long as seven and a half million years. Jesus responds immediately. And in verse six, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. I am the way and the truth and the life. It's a little bit different from 42. Uh, it's a bit more specific. But maybe for some of you, it might feel just as unsatisfying. You hear Jesus say, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And maybe you find yourself thinking and going, well, I mean, yeah, but, but what about all those other religions, Jesus? I mean, isn't that kind of arrogant for you to say? Is following Jesus really the only way? I mean, so, so what about all those other ways that people talk about? I mean, I know people of other faiths and people have no faith who are just as happy, if not more happy, than some of the Christians I meet. I mean, really, Jesus, what makes you so special? There's a famous parable that often gets shared about a king who had an elephant. He brings the elephant into his courtroom and has three blind men come in and he tells them to describe the elephant to him. And the blind men are a little bit confused, obviously, but as they end up feeling the elephant with their hands, the first man steps up to the right leg of the elephant and he feels around for a while, and, and after a while he says, O king, an elephant is much like a very large tree. It is rough and knobbly and, and very thick. I cannot even wrap my arms around it. The second man then says, though, how can this be? For when I felt the elephant, it seemed very much like a plow with its shears. Because you see, he had felt the trunk and its tusks. And then the third man chimed in saying, you're both entirely mistaken. The elephant is much more like a long, slender brush. Because, and he said this because he had felt its tail. Now, often this parable gets used to talk about religious pluralism and how there's no way to really know what's true. And maybe you've heard this parable and maybe even agree with it. Uh, Leslie Newbegin was a Christian missionary and theologian, and he points out that the real point of this parable tends to get overlooked. He says, The story is told from the point of view of the king and his courtiers, who are not blind, but can see that the blind men are unable to grasp the full reality of the elephant and are only able to get hold of part of the truth. The story is told in order to neutralize the affirmation of the great religions, to suggest that they learn humility and recognize that none of them can have more than one aspect of the truth. But of course, the real point of the story is exactly the opposite. If the king were also blind, there would be no story. The story is told by the king, and it is the immensely arrogant claim of the one who sees the full truth with, 
which all the world's religions are only groping after. To say Christians are arrogant when they say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life is actually just as arrogant as saying that you see the full elephant and that all these different religions are just leading to the same place. You see, if you were to say that Jesus can't be the only way, you're saying that you see the full elephant. And that's equally as arrogant as Jesus saying that he is the way, the truth, and the life. The only difference between what you're doing and what Jesus is saying is is that you won't admit it. And if, if you think about that for a minute, I mean, that's pretty hypocritical. But there's another problem with this parable. What if the elephant speaks? Like, hey, I'm an elephant. At the end of the day, Christians essentially believe that the elephant spoke and told us what it is. We believe that in the person of Jesus Christ, God spoke and revealed himself to the world. Jesus says to Thomas in verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. In John chapter 1, verse 14, we read, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, we may well be blind beggars just touching around and trying to make sense of this elephant in front of us. But with Jesus, the elephant speaks. Jesus is God who became flesh and dwelt among us. His ministry on earth was the fulfillment of prophecies told long ago and was accompanied by miracles and signs of power and was proven definitively once and for all by his resurrection. In the face of Jesus' life and ministry, it isn't arrogant to say that he is the way, the truth, and the life. You might say it's gullible, but it's not arrogant. But having received this answer that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, we need to remember again what the question was to begin with. What's the question they kept asking Jesus? Jesus is saying goodbye because he's going somewhere. And the question is, where is Jesus going? Where is Jesus going and and why can't they follow him now? Jesus says he's going to the Father. It's been running all throughout our passage. In John 14 verse 2, it says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it was not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Verses 6 and 7, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus is going to the Father. He's going to prepare a place for us, a place for you and for me. But there's another response to Jesus in this passage. As Jesus says goodbye because he's going away, there's another disciple who speaks. It's Philip. In verse 8, Philip replies, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus, let's forget all this nonsense about you going away. You say you're coming back to show us the way, so why don't you just go ahead and show us the Father now? Do something, Jesus, that will make me believe. 
Philip wants an unmediated experience, an, an overpowering revelation and vision of God. He wants proof. He wants proof for the heavens to open and for angels to sing and for glory to shine all around. And he's demanding a sign to believe. And maybe you've been asking for a sign. A sign that Jesus loves you. A sign to prove that God exists. A sign that God sees you. Maybe you're demanding a sign because the sand's been blown away and and you're not sure which way's up. And you're feeling off balance and you need something concrete to hold on to. You know, usually the sign we, we want, the sign we demand for, isn't actually the sign we really need. It would have been pretty cool if Jesus had ripped open the heavens for Philip and if glory had shone all around and a choir of angels had burst into song. That would have been amazing. But signs are meant to point to something. They're meant to show us the way. And if Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, then they're meant to point to him. And so Jesus says in verse 9, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Look at me, Philip. Don't you see who I am? I am the way to the Father because I am God among you. I am God with you. And I'm about to go to the Father and I'm going to prepare a room for you. You're wanting to make your home here in the sand, but do you see that palace there on the shore? I've got a room there with your name on it. And you can't follow me there just yet, but I'm about to make a way for you. Now, that might not have felt very satisfying for Philip in the moment. And I assume actually that Thomas and and Peter probably felt rather dissatisfied with how Jesus responded to them too. The sand is blowing away and, and Jesus is saying goodbye and they can't come with him. Jesus says, trust me, Philip. Trust me, Thomas. Trust me, Peter. Trust me, all of you. Trust me that I know what I'm doing. Even though the sand is blowing away and life is upside down, trust me, because I'm making a way for you. I'm making a way for you to follow me. And I'm coming back, and when I do, I'm taking you with me. Trust me as I tread this path for you. And this brings us back to Peter's confusion at the beginning. Why why can't he come with Jesus? Why can't he follow Jesus now? It has to do with that first mistake Peter made. Do you remember what that was? Peter's first mistake was presuming that he could do enough. He was overconfident in himself, and he wasn't aware of his own sin. He misdiagnosed his problem, and so he supposed that he could solve it himself. He thought he could just jump through the hoops and do the good deeds and live an exemplary life, keeping pace with Jesus, and he'd be set. He was overconfident in himself because he couldn't see the depths of his own sin. Peter's sin went so deep that for all his devotion to Jesus, for all his fanaticism, he would deny Jesus three times before the sun came up the next morning. You see, we have a sin problem, and we're very apt to misdiagnose it. 
And what we fail to see is that sin keeps us from the Father. The Father has been revealed to us in Jesus Christ. Our sin keeps us from God. And it goes so deep that we can't clean ourselves up. And so God came in the person of Jesus Christ to clean us up for us. Jesus came in the form of a person, fully God and fully man. And having lived the perfect life, he took the weight of our own sins upon his shoulders, bearing them upon the cross. He made a sacrifice for sin upon the cross, and he died. And three days later, he rose again. John 3.16 explains, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. We can't clean ourselves up. We we need Jesus to cleanse us from our sins. We don't need to try and earn his love. He already loves us. To quote one of my former pastors, in Jesus, there is nothing you can do to make God love you any more than he already does. And there is nothing you have done that can make him love you any less. Trust me, Jesus says. Trust me, all of you. Even though the sand is blowing away and life is upside down, trust me because I'm making a way for you. I am the way for you, and I am the truth, and I am the life. And I love you so much that I died on a cross for you. I took your sins upon my shoulders that you could be with me. And I've prepared a room for you in my father's house. It's got your name on it. So trust me, Jesus says, because I trod this path for you. Friends, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And none can come to the father except through him. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. In the midst of everything that's going on around us, Lord, as life is unsettled and as, as the sand is blowing away around us, ask that that truth, that, that assurance would ground us in your love. Lord, may we not build our lives upon shifting sand, but may we anchor ourselves to the rock of your love. And having that assurance of of your faithfulness to us, that you have a room with our names on it and you are coming back for us to lead us to you, to lead us to the Father. And that you forgive us of our sins that we can be with you forever. Oh, Lord, may that truth stir our hearts and may it change our lives. May we never be the same. In your precious and holy name, amen.